I'm Russell, and this is Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? This episode is brought to you by Newton Media Group and Peter Hollins. Stick around. Today is September 20th, 2022. Self-discipline is the ability to do what you don't want to do. It allows you to push through, conquer, and achieve. And without this gritty trait, nothing is possible in life. To help you further develop your self-discipline, Peter Hollins has put together his newest audiobook, The Self-Discipline Manual. Today, we have the chapter-by-chapter preview of this book. Thanks for joining us. And here is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Peter Hollins' book, The Self-Discipline Manual. Chapter 1, Self-Discipline and the Brain It's lunchtime, and you're faced with a choice. A nice, healthy salad, or a diet-destroying cheeseburger and fries. You've probably encountered dozens of such choices today alone, and made your decision, for better or worse. But what exactly allowed you to act with self-control, or if you didn't, why was it so easy to succumb to temptation? In the chapters that follow, we'll be looking closely at what self-discipline is, why it's so important to a successful life, and how we can cultivate it day by day. We'll be looking at dozens of different approaches, techniques, philosophies, and perspectives to help us become self-determined, resilient, and autonomous individuals. But throughout, there are really only two main themes we'll be exploring. One, self-awareness. Two, Conscious action. Being mindful and awake to what is unfolding in our hearts and minds is half the battle, but the other half is deliberately deciding to do something about it. That's why throughout this book, you'll be asked to pause periodically and either, one, look within and ask questions to guide self-awareness, two, take action right here, right now. Though the material we'll cover is evidence-based, and makes good sense, the truth is it means nothing if it's not weighed against your own genuine experience and unless it's brought to life in action. Look out for prompts to be aware and take action. They'll allow you to reflect on the material in your own life as well as put the ideas to good use by changing your behavior, even if that's only in small ways. The good news is that no matter where you're starting from today, It is possible to develop better self-discipline, to master your emotions, and to gain a stronger and more resilient sense of purpose. Let's dive in. The Biology of Self-Control Let's start with the body. Though it's tempting to think in abstract terms only, researchers are uncovering evidence that willpower, control, and self-discipline all have the same biological basis in the brain. If we can understand the brain regions responsible for self-control and decision-making, then perhaps we can work with our brain to make better decisions. In 2017, scientists at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory conducted experiments that revealed a link between two important parts of the brain, the brainstem and the prefrontal cortex. The researchers believe that these two brain regions are involved in regulating instinctual behavior as well as self-control, a little like the proverbial angel on one shoulder and devil on the other. 
The prefrontal cortex acts like a brake on the impulsiveness of the brainstem. The experiment began with observing mice who were bullied. <laughs> really? So-called social defeat in mice, i.e. being bullied by other mice, resulted in a weakening of the neural connections between the prefrontal cortex and the brainstem in the brains of the mice. Those mice with weaker connections then behaved more defensively. The scientists could also induce the same fear-based response in the mice through the use of certain drugs instead of social defeat. In these mice, too, the connection between the brain parts was disrupted. Now, you may be wondering, what scared mice have to do with what you choose for lunch? The connection between the prefrontal cortex and the brain... Chapter 2. The Mental Roadblocks That Prevent Our Progress So, we know that self-discipline has a biological basis, and that if we can master it, we can derive countless benefits in life. We also know that a big part of self-control is to remember the future, i.e., resist instant gratification. The best way to do that is to realize the limits of our willpower and plan accordingly. Sounds good. But if it's that simple, why don't more people have better self-discipline? Before reading on, pause and be really honest with yourself. If you feel that you currently lack self-discipline, what do you think is standing in your way? The Status Quo Bias and Why We Resist Change In 1988, researchers William Samuelson and Richard Zeckhauser conducted a range of experiments designed to explore a certain kind of cognitive bias. One experiment went like this. Participants were told to imagine they've inherited a lot of money. They're then asked to choose how they will invest it, given a series of fixed options. Some participants were given a neutral version and others a status quo bias version. In the neutral version, they were only told that they'd inherited the money and needed to choose how to invest it, with all choices being valid. In the status quo version, they were told they'd inherited money and that it was already invested in some way. They were still given options to reinvest it differently, however, if they so choose. Consider right now what you might do in this second scenario. Leave the money where it's already invested, i.e. retain the status quo, or make a deliberate change. Samuelson and Zeckhauser's results showed that in the second scenario, people tended to stay with the status quo, no matter the alternatives they were offered. In fact, the more alternative options offered, the more people tended to want to just stick with the situation they were already in. This becomes even more pronounced when you compare it to the neutral group, who chose alternatives according to their perceived merits, and what was presented as the status quo to the second group was no more or less attractive as an option when presented to the first. The conclusion, then, is that people have a bias towards favoring the status quo despite its objective benefits and drawbacks. Status quo bias, then, is the preference for your situation, any situation, even a bad one, to remain the same. It's a major roadblock in the way of developing better self-discipline. 
Sometimes when trying to make significant life changes, you may get frustrated with yourself and wonder, if I want it so badly, why don't I just do it already? The answer may be, at least in part, that you simply prefer what you know. This partly explains why people might like to remain living in a home that's objectively bad in many ways, rather than moving to one that is better, and why people tend to order the same meal at a restaurant over and over again, despite good reason to believe that there are other potentially delicious things to try. It explains why customers don't like company brands or shop layouts to change, and why an incumbent is always more likely to win than a challenger, even if the incumbent is demonstrably off. Chapter 3. How to Develop Self-Discipline and Rock-Solid Focus We've seen that self-discipline and self-control are all about delaying gratification and mastering your own limited willpower moment to moment. This constant tug-of-war is reflected in our neurochemistry, where our higher brain must learn to master and regulate our lower, more primal, and fear-based brain. We've also seen that there are, sadly, many cognitive biases that stand in the way of us fully developing our sense of self-control, including the sunk cost fallacy, the status quo bias, and loss aversion. Now, it's time to consider the methods available if we want to cultivate self-discipline despite these biases. Luckily, developing mastery over yourself is simply a matter of persistence and practice. Even if you're not currently a very disciplined or focused person, you can be. It's a choice. We'll start in a very practical way, with daily habits. Your habits are a reflection of your character, and your character will help you reinforce the optimal habits. Having looked at everything that can go wrong, let's consider what it looks like when a person lives a self-disciplined life. The Daily Habits of the Self-Disciplined Person Disciplined and focused people may all choose to do very different things with their lives, but the way they do those things is generally the same. Jason Van Camp is the founder of Mission 6-0, which is a group specializing in performance enhancement. The team have consistently identified the seven characteristics unique to self-disciplined people, and these characteristics are expressed in their everyday habits. They treat their bodies well. Willpower has a neurological basis. Your brain is an organ, and it's a part of your body. If you're not eating well, sleeping enough, and staying fit and strong, it's almost impossible to exercise control over yourself mentally and emotionally or achieve what you want to. Maintaining a wholesome and healthy lifestyle takes discipline, yes, but it also makes self-discipline so much easier. You know the drill. Have a consistent sleep schedule with at least eight quality hours. Eat a balanced, unprocessed, and nutritious diet. Actively manage stress and prioritize physical activity with strength training, cardio, and flexibility practice. If you can commit to doing right by your health, it's an act of self-respect which will boost your self-esteem and encourage you to hold higher standards for yourself in all areas of life. If you lack knowledge, then seek help. 
hire a personal trainer, a therapist, a nutritionist, or even a personal stylist. They stay away from temptation. Let's be honest. We live in a culture that constantly encourages us to have whatever we want, whenever we want it. We've all come to internalize the idea that satisfaction and fulfillment are the same as having our desires instantly met. Nothing could be further from the truth. Self-disciplined people understand that they cannot have everything they desire in every fleeting moment. They don't put themselves in temptation's way, and they have a very pragmatic understanding of their own limitations. The idea is that if you control yourself in small, preemptive ways, you don't have to exert gargantuan efforts later on. Chapter 4. The Rules for Effective Habit Building In the previous chapter, we looked at how to set up what is basically self-discipline scaffolding, a healthy life, crystal clear values and principles, and enough awareness to recognize your triggers and proactively prepare to choose better anyway. Now, in this chapter, we'll be looking at ways to build on this initial scaffold. That's because, while a healthy lifestyle and a well-developed self-awareness is half the battle, it is only half the battle. At some point, you will face barriers, hurdles, and challenges that get in the way, no matter how good your daily routines and habits are. Here are some practical tools to help you when that happens. The 40% Rule and the Secret to Mental Toughness The 40% Rule is a principle that can help you push through when things get tough. First coined by self-help author David Goggins, this rule is a quick way to get around self-limiting beliefs. It goes like this. When you're beginning to feel tired in both body and mind, you may feel like giving up. But in truth, you're only at 40% of what you are truly capable of achieving. Why would this happen? Well, the boundary is something your own brain creates and not an objective fact about reality. Recall that primitive part of the brain, the brainstem, the primary function of which is to keep you safe. This instinctual part of your brain wants to protect you from uncomfortable and potentially dangerous situations. And it's always better to be more cautious than less cautious, right? So as a result, you may feel physically exhausted, mentally worn out, or just plain scared at a point when you're not really in any danger. In fact, you may still have 60% more effort to give. The gist is that you are capable of much, much more than you think you are. Even when you genuinely feel too tired to carry on, you can recognize that this is just an excuse. You're not done. You're only 40% done. Your mind may know how to push all the right buttons. It can tell all the right stories and concoct countless reasons for why you absolutely cannot go any further. But if you can see all this for what it is, you realize that you actually have the choice to keep going and do more. Mental toughness, then, is not about being some kind of superhuman but rather about having the ability to not take your word for it when your body and mind tell you, I can't do more. Your brain is powerful, so powerful that when it tells you you can't do more, then that's precisely what it believes. But what if you tell it you can do more? 
In an interesting 2008 study published in the European Journal of Neuroscience, scientists gave one group of participants a placebo pill, telling them it was performance-enhancing caffeine. Another group got an actual caffeine pill, but were not told it would help their performance. When both groups were asked to perform some weightlifting exercises, it was the placebo group that lifted the most weight, not the caffeine group. That's a pretty big deal. It means that what the brain believes to be true is powerful enough to change the way that actual muscle tissue behaves, making it stronger and more resilient. Your beliefs about your own abilities are about so much more than just your attitude. They have the capacity to literally change your body. Chapter 5. Avoid These Self-Discipline Traps Self-discipline is cultivated over time. Expect that you'll have setbacks. In the meantime, though, you can be aware of potential pitfalls and do what you can to avoid them. The truth about why you never have enough time. You know you should be doing more exercise and taking that evening walk you promise you'd take every day, but you don't. Why? I just don't have the time. Sound familiar? Sure, it's a garden variety excuse, but it really does seem like every day you run out of time, and every other thing eats up the available hours until there's nothing left to do those tasks you know you should do. British historian Cyril Parkinson has an explanation for this phenomenon, and it's commonly written as, Work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. What does this mean? It means that if you wake up and you're a journalist with two articles to write that day, somehow you get them done by the deadline. If you only have half an article to write the whole week, somehow that's how long it ends up taking you. Parkinson gave the example of an elderly woman who has literally nothing to do one day except write a postcard to her niece, something that, objectively, takes a few minutes to do. But by Parkinson's law, she finds herself spending an hour selecting a postcard at the store, a full 20 minutes planning to write something and lettering it out neatly, another 45 minutes to walk to the post office, maybe with the stop on the way to get coffee. This one task can spread out and fill the entire day, so that if someone asks this elderly lady at the end of it to do them a favor, she may well say, I just don't have the time. Fine, it's an extreme example. But the principle points to many things Parkinson criticized. For example, the fact that an organization would streamline and seemingly have less and less work over time, and yet administrative staff were as busy and numerous as ever. A professor at the Science of Complex Systems at the Medical University of Vienna, Stefan Turner, noticed the phenomenon in his university's medical faculty. After splitting from the main university, the newly independent faculty grew from 15 staff members to 100, even though the number of scientists stayed exactly the same. The only thing that increased was the bureaucracy. What happens with over-bureaucratization in big organizations can happen on an individual level, too. Without realizing it, you create busy work for yourself and start establishing 
hierarchies, and task pyramids that, if you'd only look closely, serve very little purpose other than to make the task fit the available time, and in some cases, eat up other available resources. When Turner examined governmental cabinet sizes in different countries, he found that groups above 20 start to show lowered effectiveness, and emergent dynamics start to interact with one another rather than on solving the task at hand. On the personal level, this may look a little something like this. You're writing a book that needs loads of research, and so you spend hours creating a filing and organization system to keep track of information. When this takes up too much time, you hire a PA, then spend too much time teaching them your system. They start making their own amendments to that. Chapter 7, Self-Discipline and Living in the Moment. For those wanting to develop not just a superficial sense of self-control, but a deeper feeling of mastery over one's entire experience through awareness, Zen Buddhism might hold some valuable insights. With its roots in Chinese philosophy, Zen is a blend of Mahayana Buddhism and Taoism and has now successfully spread to the West. Zen is a way of encountering reality. For practitioners of Zen Buddhism, it is possible to access the nature of reality and the nature of self directly, that is, without theory, symbols, language, or even the direct application of reason and logic. It's a deeply mystical path that often deliberately appears paradoxical. The awkward conclusion, then, is that Zen is not really something you can write about or read about. It's only something you can experience, and there's only one place you can experience it right now. Enlightenment is not, according to Zen, a question of arduous effort or of intelligent understanding, but a spontaneous realization. To reach this realization is not a question of intellectual study or logic. Instead, the path is meditation, an activity the mind may be very unfamiliar with. Zen's non-dualistic, non-intellectual, and non-rational spiritual practice could help immensely with self-discipline, since the approach is about cultivating conscious awareness, the bedrock for any deliberate and self-directed action. To access the insights of Zen, we meditate. During meditation, we're encountering what is, without grasping or avoidance, without identification, and without ego. We see that there is something that exists before our thinking minds. We don't dwell on mental pictures and symbols and ideas about the past or the future. We are alive only to what is real, which is continuously unfolding in the present. We are aware of duality, interpretation, and ego. But these things come and go like ripples on the surface of reality, which is unchanging and of which we are a part. Zen is, in fact, a Japanese word for meditation. The path, the idea, and the action are one and the same. Zen is something you do and something you are. The original founder and teacher of Zen, the Bodhidharma, taught that the nature of reality could be learned outside of scriptures, letters, and words, 
and could be discovered within yourself, in your own mind and in your own awareness. In fact, to do so would allow us all to become Buddhas, or rather, to realize that we all have Buddha nature already. To meditate, then, is not to do anything special in particular, except be aware. Like many other forms of meditation, there's a focus on the breath and a calm and soft attention to what is unfolding in the moment. And like other forms of meditation, new practitioners may find the process boring, uncomfortable, confusing, or strange. Meditation builds discipline, but it also requires discipline. Focused, mindful awareness is both the result of self-discipline as well as its cause. In a way, practicing meditation is like getting to the very heart of the self-discipline. Chapter 8. How Action Changes Your Mindset Awareness matters, and so does action. Nothing becomes real in our world until we take action and make it so. In this chapter, we'll look at the attitudes that are necessary to consistently take positive action, as well as the trap we can fall into when we act unconsciously or else keep making one false start after another. What it really means to have a can-do attitude. You have to have a positive attitude, people say this, and it's glib and cliche, but it also happens to be true. A major mistake that people make when trying to create the lives they want for themselves is thinking that state of mind is a result of external events. This is backward. Your state of mind is a cause of external events. With a negative attitude, you're passive, and life is something out there that happens to you whether you like it or not. With a positive attitude, you're active and make things happen because those things matter to you and because you trust in your power to make them real. That a positive can-do attitude is associated with a self-disciplined life and more success is obvious. But to actually make the mindset shift is something that too few of us commit to. It's a practice, and something we have to continuously choose to do. Nobody can force us to use our own agency. Growth Mindset versus Fixed Mindset Consider the example of Muhammad Ali who is today known as one of the world's greatest boxers. In her 2006 book, Mindset, author Carol Dweck says of Ali, he was not a natural. He had great speed, but he didn't have the physique of a great fighter. He didn't have the strength, and he didn't have the classical moves. In fact, he boxed all wrong. He didn't block punches with his arms and elbows. He punched in rallies like an amateur. He kept his jaw exposed. He pulled back his torso to evade the impact of oncoming punches, which Jose Torres, former colleague of Ali, said was like someone in the middle of a train track trying to avoid being hit by an oncoming train, not by moving to one or the other side of the track, but by running backwards. Yet despite all this, he consistently beat opponents who did the things right and had the right stats and were theoretically bigger, better, and stronger. The reason? His mindset. You only need to look at a photo of Ali or watch footage of him in a match to see something striking. Despite his fairly average measurements and modest physique, he won 56 of 61 fights in his career, 
some against boxers far more skilled than he was. According to Dweck, Ali had what she calls a growth mindset. This is the belief that who we are now isn't all we'll ever be, and that growth and development are possible. Because skills can be acquired, we can always improve, and that means that failure and challenge are to be embraced because they help us become better. We acknowledge that effort is essential to building mastery, and so embrace it, welcoming feedback without letting our egos get in the way and facing setbacks with resilience and curiosity. It is, in other words, the proverbial can-do attitude. The fixed mindset is the opposite. It sees human characteristics as fixed and unchangeable, something you're born with or cursed. Chapter 9. Make your emotions work for you. The person with self-discipline knows a secret. You can choose how you want to feel. Feelings are a part of life. They are powerful and can influence what we think, how we behave, what we want, and what we believe about ourselves. While this is all true, emotions are not our masters. We can learn to honor and understand our emotions without letting them derail us, overwhelm us, or confuse us. How to Develop Emotional Discipline Being self-disciplined is not about having no emotions or dominating the emotions you have. Rather, it's about realizing that your conscious will and rational intention are ultimately what win out. Feeling our emotions, having self-awareness, and respecting our lived experience is all a part of learning how to channel our emotions and direct them in the ways we choose. After all, emotions are a powerful source of motivation, meaning, and purpose. We want to have emotions. However, we need to have emotional discipline if we hope to use our emotions wisely. Mastering Emotions Step 1. Be Aware the next time you feel a strong emotion, pause and become aware. Try to see if you can identify the cause that triggered that emotion. A trigger can be an external event or situation, or an internal event, such as a thought, feeling, or memory. Next, try to find where this emotion is located in your body. What do you feel, and where do you feel it? Finally, Take a look at the thoughts that come along with these sensations. Perhaps a feeling of nervousness and panic is accompanied with the thought, you'd better do this perfectly or else. You might need to examine the self-talk you're engaged in or the core beliefs that are activated. Step 2. Reframe. Remember that you can choose how you feel. Some emotions will pop up spontaneously, but with awareness you can choose whether or not to feed them. Once you are aware of an emotional reaction as a reaction, you can ask if you'd like to change it and see things differently. Mental reframing is about changing your perspective and challenging yourself to have a different view. Emotions are not reality. We can feel one way today and another way tomorrow. Therefore, while we have to be aware of and honor our emotions, we mustn't confuse them with an objective appraisal of reality. They're more like colored filters placed over reality. 
Mental reframing is simply a matter of asking if you want to look at reality through a different filter. Mastering your own emotions is always the same two-step process. Become aware, then reframe. But there are two related misconceptions that get in the way of doing this. Misconception 1. Feeling an emotion means you must express it. Sometimes strong and intense feelings seem to command our attention and full participation. It's as though we say, with a feeling this strong, I have to express it. But that's not really true. An emotion's intensity is not a proof of its accuracy or its usefulness. In recent years, there's been a big push for people to develop emotional intelligence and awareness of how they feel, but it's a mistake to assume that once we know how we feel, we are automatically obliged to act on it. You've just listened to voiceover work and audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? I'm your host, Russell. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you on Saturday with the preview of our next featured audiobook. Hope you have a great weekend. See you then.